Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Economics Design Podcast. My name is Giovanni Popolo, and I'm part of the consulting team within the Economics Design. I'm very excited to be joined today by Jordan Smith, founder and CEO of Synet, a decentralized life sciences research and investment ecosystem that is under development. So thank you so much, Jordan, for joining me. Um, and before we start jumping into the context and everything, we, we know uh, we have a lot to talk today, but it would be good if you could just introduce yourself uh, to the audience, how you got here very briefly, and what is your current, what are you currently working on? What is Synet? Just very general. Sure. So uh, I am, as you said, Jordan Smith. I have no formal background in scientific research. However, uh, I got into it um, kind of very from a very personal experience that happened to me um, and to my family. So this is about six years ago or seven years ago now. Um, my middle son was very shortly after being born, diagnosed with something called eczema herpeticum, which prior to the advent of a ciclovir was very life-threatening. Um, and it was miraculous how this antiviral cream that the doctors prescribed completely cured him in like four days, uh, four or five days. The, it went from almost looking like leprosy to uh, completely clear skin. And I was so struck by how effective that was that I started looking into who had even come up with such a such a, a drug. And it turns out that it was a woman named Gertrude Elion who was one of a very few female Nobel Prize winners in in uh, oh physiology and medicine, and I think twelve. And it. It actually it has broad impacts on anybody who has herpes, AIDS, all kinds of uh, serious sounding uh, maladies, as well as this skin condition that my son had. And it actually took her 17 years to develop this drug. And it just so happens that that's actually still the average today for how long it takes life sciences research to go from lab to real life application. And she was a genius and a Nobel Prize winner. She actually invented another drug that saved my dog's life as well, which is a weird coincidence. And um, she um, really has had a massive impact on antiviral research. And, and yet, I was just struck by how long it took. Clearly not a sort of a lacking on her behalf, but just there was a systemic issue, it seemed, that it, that was clearly causing this thing to take so long. And I kind of set it aside because I just didn't really feel like I had the acumen at the time to tackle the problem, but it was just something that was bothering me. And then when the COVID-19 pandemic happened, uh, I was just sort of going into everything thinking, ah, the FDA is always the problem on why no medicine can ever happen quickly and, yeah. um, and things like that. But it, it was so quick during the pandemic. M new technologies were even basically invented uh, out of research that had been sitting in labs doing nothing uh, on RNA research, all of a sudden turned into uh, vaccines that were instrumental in helping to control the pandemic. And not only that, but then a, a slew of antivirals and diagnostics and all kinds of new things cropped up. 
So I knew that it didn't have to be slow. And that just meant that there were some, some, maybe this is an oversimplification, but essentially just like logistics things that need to be adjusted in order for uh, life sciences research to happen on a much faster scale. And fast doesn't mean bad. I mean, it, it would still have to go through the same kind of vetting process with the FDA if it's medicine, for example, but it would be more likely to pass it because the science is being done better. So that's kind of what set us on the road for that. I realized, okay, it's possible. What is actually holding it back? And we did a bunch of research in a field that I later learned already existed called meta-science, uh, which is essentially the study of how science gets done um, and found, in fact, 18 underlying factors that contribute to this overall delay. And uh, we think it should happen in months, not decades. And that's what we're trying to accomplish. So the first thing, just to sum, our, sum up, uh, you asked what we're working on right now, is trying to tackle the basically the, the heart of where the research has to start, which is with funding, unfortunately. And so um, since that's where most research starts, that's where we're starting as well. And we're building a, a, f a funding platform for life sciences researchers to propose scientific research projects that have rigorous underlying science, positive world impact, and strong commercial potential for an industry application of some kind. It doesn't have to be medicine. It can be anything in life sciences research. And then backers, regular people, people who might go on Robin Hood, uh, can go in there, they can support the projects by helping to fund them and receive various kinds of tokenized assets in return, uh, starting with a, a tokenized right to royalties that arise from the science. <clears throat> that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's interesting because, um, as you mentioned, um, your son had something that wasn't common. And then that's probably the reason why we didn't have focus on it or we didn't have the political uh, people like looking at it and helping it because it just didn't have too much demand. And I think that's one of the one of the big problems that we also have today, which is um, processes, as you mentioned. So the way things go. So I think that to set the stage for the audience, it would be good if we kind of touch a little bit on this process. We know that for science, you have a lot of things such as where you publish, who is reviewing it. Um, how you get funding to get the research going. So we have a bunch of moving pieces that um, are probably identified in the 18 that you mentioned, and that really caused that, right? It, of course, it's it's, it's a much deeper um, topic when we talk about it because we do have limited funds. We have a bunch of things to research. And so how do we filter that? We either have to have a very, very good guideline to filter that, or we have to give power to the people to do it like as they will. Right? Instead of centralizing into one person or one entity who's going to say, okay, you get this much, you get this much, we can bring people in and people like you and say, hey, I want to support this cause because it's important for me. And then maybe it's not for government or it's not going to get votes for people who are donating it um, to these causes. But for you, that's important. And maybe a couple of people or a group of people like you can make that happen. And from 17 years, maybe we come up to a couple of months, as you mentioned, right? So yeah. what, are, what are these processes? How do you see this? Well, I recently wrote an article on uh, this topic of, of obligatory grant reliance and the effect it has on, on scientific research. And the, the point of the article is not really to denigrate 
the grant system, uh, I think that it will always have a, a place and will always be important. And it's just a fact that the vast majority of scientific research that has come about in the United States is a result of the grant funding, even the things that are so wonderful. So it's great that that has happened, but it seems like the system that was put in place to facilitate and accelerate scientific research, and in our case, specifically life sciences research, has also become its greatest blocker for some reason. And there are a few things that are salient for me when you were talking about like how the science is chosen and who gets the funding and things like that. Um, one is there are there's a review board and these people are experts and they are smart and they are I I have no doubt that they're sincere in 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 their their work. Um, the issue is, is there's been a number of studies that have shown that the way the funding is distributed, uh, has some deficiencies. Um, one is we know that in interdisciplinary research, uh, where multiple fields of, of science are brought to bear on a single research frontier has massive improvements in the quality and the speed and the accuracy and just the success of that research. Uh, I, I have the research study and I think what it said is for every new field brought to bear on a specific, a specific research frontier, there's a 20% increase in the efficiency of that research. And one great example of this that I, I like to talk about a lot is there's a lab at UCLA, uh, that re does research on quantum biology. And I had never even heard of quantum biology before I, I met these people, but it's run by somebody who is. Uh, a, a quantum physicist who has no background in, in biology, but then there's many biologists there as well. And that's the only way that that area of research can really be effectively uh, uh, examined because you have to understand some of the quantum effects that are present in the world and then interpret them as how, how they're playing out in biology. Um, and some of the like the most exciting it's like kind of small but it has a far-reaching impact if you think about it is they are thinking of they're looking at the quantum fields that are emitted or sorry the electromagnetic fields that are emitted from from cell phones um and they believe that once they understand on a quantum level how healing happens that they can calibrate those electromagnetic fields to accelerate healing. And if you think about how ubiquitous cell phones are, even in third world countries, even in very poor areas, uh, everybody's got cell phones. Um, and yet they don't have access to sanitation. They don't have access to good healthcare, uh, access to doctors, uh, medical, like basic, like mm, education on, on hygiene or anything. They might still have the cell phone and that cell phone just in and of itself could be passively helping people heal when they get hurt. And so I think that would have a massive impact. And yet this is because of its interdisciplinary nature and because it's so avant-garde, it is something that is extremely difficult to gain grant funding for. On top of that, uh, we see that scientists early and early mid-career receive the least amount of grant funding 
scientists in their late career receive the most amount of grant funding. And there is a, a good, there's a certain logic to that because you want to place the funds in the hands of the people who might have the most experience using the funds or who might, uh, you know, have had a demonstrated track record over the years. Uh, but there is a lot of other research out there that shows that the, the greatest impact that a scientist has to their field is during their early career. And that there, that tapers off drastically later on in career. And so we're putting the funds in the hands of the people who now have the least impact just on average, I'm not saying about every late career scientist, uh, and and not giving the funds to the people who can have the greatest positive impact. Um, so those are those are two of the big issues that I'm seeing with it. Um, other than the big the big biggest one, which is all scientists end up spending about half their time just looking for grants, just so they can keep doing their work, and in a lot of university cases, just so they can keep their jobs. And so they're spending money on this sort of self-preservation activity and or they're spending time, I should say, on the self-preservation activity and not actually doing their work. And if you consider the amount of time, uh, you know, a Ph.D. in microbiology who uh, has has had to spend in their education alone, uh, then being a research assistant and uh, doing postdoc work to the point where they're applying for grants, how much expertise and knowledge they've gained on that specific area of research that they're doing. And it's just being wasted on a bureaucratic process of, of writing and rewriting and shoehorning and um, trying to figure out a way to make your science make sense to a grant that may or may not exactly fit the bill. That's just a waste of everybody's time. So our goal is to decrease the time that they have to spend on funding, on seeking funding by 90%, which is a massive goal. And we think that if we can get them back to doing the work that they want to do, just the time on the problem being increased so much will increase the speed of the science. Not to say that they can't go spend time getting grants as well if they want to, but uh, we want to present an, an, a viable alternative as well. You're creating another channel, right? So like, if you want to go to the traditional route, you can do it. If you're used to that, go ahead. Yes. But here is like another option. If you believe that the direction that we're going currently, it's not the, the best one. And if you want to try out another one. Yeah. And the thing is, is like, if you, if you open up that pipeline a little bit so that the grant applications are not so massive in comparison to the amount of funds that are available, then then there's not so much rejection. There's not so much wasted time here because the NSF and the NIH in the U.S. are the biggest funders of life sciences research, but they only approve in a low 20% of all of the, the grant applications that they receive per year. So we're essentially freeing up the whole system to not be so bogged down with all of the, pro all of the, the proposals that are going to be coming through there they're not going to receive as many proposals. They're not going to have to go through as many proposals. They'll be able to spend more time on each proposal that they do have because they don't. They know that they don't have 10,000 more behind them. They might only have four or three or who knows. And so the quality of the review 
will be able to improve on the grant side simply by providing this alternative. Not only that, but by providing the alternative, more people will get funded for the work. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I think um, when we think about processes and how things work, I think we have a lot to improve. And I think two things that you said that were very interesting was one about like the research that is focused on a long-term or a far thing to be reality. So a research that will take 15 years. I don't know. We're talking about this high level tech that we don't even have the tech capacity yet to execute, but we know that this is going to be important in the future. And also the other thing is about the, how, the age, right? So since this process seems to have a lot of political things that you have to convince, you got to have names, you got to know who is looking at your proposal, who is supporting it. Um, this probably weighs a lot into these more experienced people. And when we think of incentives, it doesn't really make sense because if you're a scientist that, and that's, that's generalizing, of course, it's not for every case, but if you're a scientist that already had 30 years of experience and you have a bunch of science that, uh, research that was published and it was successful, your incentives to keep trying hard and to find new things and to push very hard are much lower than someone who is starting, someone who is passionate and still has to prove itself to the field, right? What do you in think? fact, you're right. It's it, in, in, in addition to that, there actually, there is a disincentive for them to do that because pushing research frontiers in your late career when you have success already is a risk. And, and so there is that, that hanging over a lot of scientists heads about uh, what if I find something that contradicts what I previously published or do what, should I even bother trying to push the envelope here? I've already got a life's work. And, and it, on top of that, and it's like, that's a normal human re response. It's not something that's only scientists deal with this. And I'm not denigrating scientists by any means. It's just a normal response that they have to contend with. And we're just trying to figure out ways to, to remove that disincentive so that it doesn't cause a problem with the science. And on top of that, late career scientists, they have been shown to cite older work much more. And older work is often perfectly valid. Uh, it's the work that they were familiar with during their training in their early career. But it's also true that the older work often is to some extent been... Um, I, d I really don't like saying debunked, but there may be new new research that maybe corrects some things or provides a new insight into a problem that was not known in the older work that they don't they're not aware of that they don't cite and that the younger uh, scientists do um, because it's it's more uh, sort of current to their life. So that's another reason why this this problem happens. And then on top of that. It's publishing. It seems kind of reverse, like a reverse issue. But the more publications you have, the more likely you are to get grant funding. And again, there is logic to this because if you've published, that usually that's kind of an indication that you have been able to take grant funding and turn it into something that is that resulted in a new contribution to the field. And at, at, and the publication is the evidence of that new 
that new contribution. So that in and of itself is not a real problem, but what it has created is a very commonly uh, experienced pressure that probably all scientists feel, which is publish or perish. And this publish or perish pressure is basically uh, uh, a perverse incentive to just churn out anything that you possibly can and and often republish the same results in different contexts and often um, publish things that the publisher parish perverse incentive also causes an incentive to um, exaggerate the the impact of a, a, a discovery. It also it caters to the fact that most of the big high impact journals really only want high impact publications. Uh, there's not there's not that much interest in publishing ho hum results or results that might contradict the original um, hypothesis. Uh, the scientists don't really like often publishing results that contradict their original hypothesis, even though they'll, they, they often really all understand that whatever they've d discovered is valuable and even being proven wrong is, is in many cases just as valuable as being proven right. But it, there's the human element of this makes me look like I didn't know what I was talking about in the first place or whatever. Um, and in fact, the most vaunted, most hyped publications out there uh, that happen, the ones that make it out of the science journals and into even popular publications are end up being <laughs> the least reproducible work and often often false uh, in in the sort of conclusions that are drawn from the, from the work. And this is a well-documented phenomenon that I am not coming up with uh, that is one of the core contributions to the field of meta-science is that um, most scientific research is that's published that people hear about is wrong. And uh, in fact, $28 billion worth of life sciences research in the U.S. annually is not reproducible. And a lot of that comes from the these, these like massively hyped stories that you might hear that end up making their way into the tech page of the economist or something like that um yeah. so there's this issue in publishing not uh, on top of that uh it's it's you have to pay to publish you give up your you give up a lot of the intellectual property rights when you do that but if you want if you are a scientist who believes in open access you have to pay for other people to be able to do that. Like an open access publication might, you know, in nature, for example, to do that might cost eleven or $12,000 from the scientist to be able to just make it so that regular people who don't have a subscription to nature, which is essentially not accessible for most people from a cost perspective. Uh, that's why institutions usually pay for those. Um, they can't even read it unless the scientist is willing to foot the bill for that. Essentially, redirecting grant funds probably that they received that they could use 
to pay for another research assistant or to keep the lights on at the lab or buy another piece of equipment or something that will accelerate their research just has to go in order to be able to publish and like to to support this mentality of open access to research. You don't have to pay if it's not open access, but you just don't have to pay as much, maybe a, a third. There's also politicization that we talked about in publishing as well. Um, there's issues with access, which I just uh, addressed. And then there's this issue with editorial self-publishing. So not to say that the, that the work that the editors themselves publish isn't good or valid, but across the board, there's been quite a bit of, of analysis done on the how much how, what the volume of publications is that are coming from editors or people who are on like the the board who determine what gets published there's a lot of that uh a very heavy weight of that is coming from them themselves and um so that is just seems maybe maybe a conflict of interest at at, at best um at worst who knows and on top of that, most journals do not require full data sets to, to publish. And there is a, a scientist and an editor of, um, or what is the name of his publication? It's, it's going to be Mole Molecular Brain. And his name is uh, Tsuyoshi Miyakawa. And he had a, I would consider it to be a landmark paper called No Raw Data, No Science, another possible source of the reproducibility crisis. And essentially, he's saying when the, there's no raw data provided to the publications, then the people who are vetting that, they basically, it, it just basically has to sound right. It has to sound plausible um, because they have no other way... Uh, of really vetting it unless that person happens to be an expert in that exact field and would be able to authoritatively say, I think you're lying. They have no other way of vetting it because most of them do not require raw data. Um, and even if they did, the publications probably don't have the appetite to sift through all that. So that's a whole other issue that causes lack of reproducibility. And we know that reproducibility is like the key to whether or not the science and make it out of the theoretical stage and into like a real world application stage. So that was a long rant. Yeah, no, but that's that's great. I think it it fetches on exactly where we're trying to go. And I think we we start identifying a bunch of incentives that are structured in the wrong way, right? So we talk about where where can you publish? Who controls that? Who says the yes and no? Um, how do you get funds? Who give these funds? What are the channels that you have to be in? to be able to receive these funds. Who are you to be eligible for receiving these funds? So what's your brand, right? What's your, I think this is something that comes a lot from the older generations, which is like, okay, so what have you done? What, where have you worked? What is your story behind? And not like, what is the quality of what you do right now? What is your capacity? And I think that all of these, uh, uh, all of these uh, uh, modes talk a lot about what we're trying to solve with Web3. Right, we're trying to bring power and to open this to um, the population as a whole, to the people, and not for centralized entities. So, as you said, why do you have to control 
who can publish? Why do you have to charge $12,000 for someone who just wants to share something that they've been working for years and years to, for a better of like the entire humanity? So why do you need $12,000 or whatever the cost is to publish that? Or even why don't we have structured channels for anyone to receive funds? And why can, why is it so hard for me as a normal person to know what research is happening, even if it's the smallest one, even if it's against what the major polit politics or researchers or doctors believe. What if I believe differently, right? So we start talking about, okay, let's take out all of these uh, um, stamps of, oh, I'm nature, I am the organization XYZ, and let's start looking at what's actually being done. So as you said, editors publishing, um, this really tells a lot about um, how the selection is biased, right? It's not something that is effective, efficient, or even fair. I think the biggest thing is fairness, right? So yeah. how do you I see Web3 fitting into this and starting to like challenge this current um, model? Sure. And I'll, I'll, I want to just mention one couple of yeah. things and then I'll, I'll jump into Web3. I would say that probably the work that's being published by the editors is good. It's probably really good. That's not really the issue. It's like, is there some bias that's being brought to bear to publish their good work as opposed to some other person's good work? That's the mm -hmm. question. Um, and then regarding <clears throat> politicization, I just wanted to give a quick example, throw it out there for the listeners. This the perfect example of this is is all of the um, politicization that happened around research of of COVID nineteen and the. If you if you just take it from an epidemiological perspective and try to research and try to research the source of the virus, that was such a a taboo topic for such a long time to even suggest that it might have come uh, from from Wuhan, China was in fact uh, a, you you were labeled by pundits and by politicians as uh, well depending on which tribe you belong to as as a racist or um similar similar uh character besmirchments and uh and yet today it's it's completely valid to ask that question so um yeah that's the kind of thing where it was pol politicization of what was going on made people even afraid to examine questions that are normal questions to ask um like where did it come from? Which is important to understand how to deal with those kinds of problems in the future. Um, it's it's very well known, for example, that a lot of the tropical uh, viruses come from uh, encroachment into human encroachment into jungle areas and uh, unsafe practices of of bushmeat consumption and the markets that show up right on the edge of these jungles. Um, and the fact that logging and other use of, of jungle mm -hmm. resources is pushing further and further into the deep older growth, all of those are problems that should be addressed. And those are vectors for where these new viruses come from. And I don't know if that's how it happened with, with the COVID-19 um, or if it came out of uh, a lab or if it was some kind of false flag thing like it does like i don't know what the answer is but i do know that that's a major vector is this bushmeat issue and the encroachment into the jungles and why not examine that like that that seems like a really reasonable thing to examine but even that was a taboo topic it was a taboo topic to question um how 
effective the vaccines are is a taboo topic to question how the the virus was spread. It was a taboo topic to discuss whether uh, cloth masks were very effective or uh, any of those things, which are things that you would normally just be in the pursuit of knowledge and understanding our the world around us would want to know the answer to. But even asking the question was very, very uh, political. Uh, just to give an example uh, about that. So anyways, Web3. The, in the decentralized science movement, the most most of the motivation lies in this concept about like should like a sort of a moral high ground of science should be in the hands of the people, um, funding should be accessible to everybody, um, publishing should not operate how it does now. And, 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 and basically it's, it's a massive application of typical like blockchain and web three decentralized, uh, uh, mentality to science. Um, let's take out the middlemen, all of that stuff. Um, for us, I guess I can say that I, I am like, I'm willing to like tip my hat at that. Um, but for us, it is much more a matter of web three technology and systems and and decentralized organizations i believe have the greatest ability to narrow this gap of how long it takes science to get into the hands of like real world users um and and this is not just like medicine like biological sequestration of of carbon is a big big issue that i feel like more science more resources should be applied to it we should try to figure out how to accelerate that research as much as possible uh there are there are far, you know food science issues um how how food is produced all kinds of things that fall under that life sciences umbrella that i think what we would just you know i want to grow i want the second half of my life or the third third of my life i guess to be a world where I live in in what my brain ex- like thinks of as the future right now, and I want that for me. I want that for my family. I want that for the the planet, and I want to figure out ways to make all that cool stuff happen faster. And in fact, in literature, science fiction literature is the only genre of literature that I know of where life imitates art rather than the typical art imitating life. Science fiction has informed pretty much every scientific advancement that we've had in the past 100 years in one way or another. AI is an example of that. Blockchain technology is an, is an example of that to refer to two recent um, trends. And like space travel is an example of that. That was something that was being discussed by like Ed- Edgar Rice Burroughs way before there was any any like conceivability about it like and and so to me i get i got really inspired by all that and just like everybody else who has been i want that to be real and so that for me is why i want science to be done faster there's a massive positive benefit to people who 
even like people who need orphan who have orphan diseases who might have to wait 20 years for something to happen i like why why do they why should they have to wait so that's why it is for me it's less about the ideology of uh sort of decentralization maximalism and more about I truly believe that this is the best way to solve this problem. Yeah. And something that while, while you were speaking, I was thinking that a lot of people talk about when they say why it is how it is now is about like the quality of the project. So people say, hey, this it's so hard, takes so long, and you have to go through so many processes because you have to make sure that the research that is being put out um, is has high quality that people are doing the yes. work and the research that they have to. And I know that there there are many ways of doing it, right? You can do the way that it is right now is that you put a board of a couple people who have the hammer and they decide it. Um, but you can also explore other ways, right? You can use social interactions. We can use like ranking systems. So how do you see this? Do you think that introducing an infrastructure of Web3 and blockchain and enabling like a wider range of research to come in? Do you think it hurts quality or do you see ways of um, creating creating this, this filtering, right? But in a fair way. It needs to be intentional because there, there was this fallacy regarding the wisdom of crowds that, um, that crowd wisdom was categorically better. And this, this happened uh, in the sort of the... 2000 to basically 2022 or 2020, I'd say, was this experimentation with crowdsourcing uh, wisdom or knowledge. And the issue is there has to be a balance between the wisdom of crowds and some kind of guiding concepts. And so, what what I what we what we were doing is we're having a you know, an internal vetting process in the beginning for science that we're looking at for funding, for example, to try to assess it for those three core criteria of does this meet um, the standard of rigorous underlying science? Does this um, have positive world impact? And is there a commercial, real commercial po potential for it? Um, then the wisdom of the crowd allows those bare minimum standards, which are actually important standards, the crowd comes into play initially with the fact that the backers of this science are able to, once they have, once they're presented with sort of a curated set of options that, that the the crowd probably would not on its own be able to identify if it, if it was, if it, if it met those three criteria, once they're presented with that curated set of options, then their wisdom can come into play. And that's what that's what we think strongly about. And there's there's this organization and they just changed their name. And so now I can't remember what they're called anymore. But uh, for-profit companies have figured out this concept and they figured out that people who even don't have any real expertise in the field can can help come up with with um, groundbreaking insights and they post bounty they post problems on this website with bounties and they specifically ask for submissions from the crowd where from people who don't have expertise in that field and because the problem has already been defined 
that's the curation that need, that the crowd needs to have before they can make a meaningful contribution, in my opinion, and also in the experience to this organization that's been running for, I think, 12, 15 years. So that's the first decentralized aspect of things. Plus the fact that it's it's built on the internet computer, which is a very decentralized blockchain. But again, that kind of goes back to like technological decentralization as opposed to organizational decentralization. We are a for-profit company and we probably will stay that way. Um, but as things go, there's room for further uh, decentralization. So we're not going to be able to do the vetting for these projects long-term ourselves. Uh, we do have a scientist on staff who is, has, for the past 20 years, been like a go-to person for pharmaceutical companies to help them assess the viability of early-stage projects and and see what the com- what the scientific and commercial viability of those projects are. So he's helping us in the early term, but we hope that we get the kinds of projects that are so out there that we need outside help to to vet them. And probably we will use token incentives to bring in experts to to vet these projects. And eventually, down the line, it's a couple software applications down the line from where we're at right now. We're going to be building a decentralized publishing and social media slash collaboration platform for scientists that will have a, that will serve a bunch of purposes. Uh, one, certainly being solving a lot of the problems in publishing, um, but two putting it to that expert crowd to help vet the projects that go on the funding platform. And that expert crowd, it's it, that's a big difference between that and a, a you know, just like a, a normal, like even, even me, like I, I would put definitely put myself in the non-expert crowd. Right. And uh, so that is a way that we can intentionally bring to bear some of these decentralized concepts without losing track of the quality. Uh, another way that we can do that is actually through this the way the science itself is documented. So a very, very large proportion of scientists out there, including life sciences researchers, use something called a physical lab notebook to track all of their work. And there is some sort of comfortable familiarity with having the book and being able to write and uh, having it something you can hold and you can flip through and and all of those things. I, I get it. And I I I have certain books that I will always have in in physical form and I'm not going to have digital copies of those books. But that is the more of a sentimental thing. It's definitely not a efficiency. Like yeah, it's not efficiency. And and if I'm trying to find a passage, I'm not going to the book. I'm going to the internet because I can't remember where it is in the book. And and that is is sort of like the core issue. Um I've seen I've done interviews with with people who run labs at different universities and one of them had gigantic bookshelves all behind him and there were just a bunch of binders on there and I asked him what those were I thought I knew that they were lab notebooks and he said those are lab notebooks and I said do you ever open them and he said no and that was like 
oh, wait, what's the point? It's like you're storing all of the discoveries in these books and all of the evidence in these books and nobody's ever looking at them. Nobody's ever opening them. Nobody is uh, benefiting from it, uh, really. Like you can't ever, it's extremely difficult to go back and look for new insight that you might be able to get through cross-referencing or bioinformatics or or anything like that. And so there has been a, a somewhat of a movement to digitize. Um, there's a big, big company uh, called Benchling. Uh, they're a centralized digital lab mm -hmm. where they do a lot of things. They've got a lot of bioinformatics tools and also uh, a lab notebook. Um, and it's solving part of the problem for sure. Uh, however, we've done a lot of interviews uh, with people who have used it. And one of the most funny ones that I've heard was it made me want to stab my eyes out with pipettes when they put it in our lab. <laughs> and, and so, but there are people who like it as well. The big issue there is it's a centralized system. So you have none of the value that is just typically vaunted by uh, a blockchain proponents uh, of, of having all of that data on chain. Um, there's, it, it's mutable. It is not secure, not in the same ways anyways. Uh, it's difficult to track and attribute uh, who along down the, the road, how it evolved and how, you know, who was involved in that process over the long term. Um, and then there's also just the general sort of UI, UX, UI problems that 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 company is having. And, and so uh, what we want to do, and we think that this is one of the core problems in reproducibility. And we think that if we can make a product that people love to use independent of whether it's um, like blockchain is not even the issue for the users, right? Most of them are not even going to care. That's like us saying your pro the product's going to be great because it's stored on Amazon web services. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Or like trying to convince people uh, to use Gmail and it's so great because it uses IMAP. It's like, it doesn't, it's, it doesn't mean anything. Um, but we create something that is organic to the process of life sciences researchers, get them to use it because they like it. And then by default, you know, they're, they're making a decision for one reason and that's great because they'll use it. And then all of that science will be much more easily, uh, tracked, documented, examined, reviewed, all of the stuff that comes with the benefit of digitizing case management systems in general will happen. But on top of that, there's some really cool implications with, with uh, tracking intellectual property rights and making sure that the, the, the wealth of information stays on the internet forever. Um, you know, the internet computer is a blockchain that will stay going for, you know, in perpetuity as long as there's a node somewhere. And uh, those are the sort of default benefits of getting them to use it that they probably aren't even aware of that they're that they're doing that. They're just using it because they feel like it's going to make their science go better. And so we're, we're kind of solving multiple issues from different perspectives from the from the world's perspective, it's ba basically becoming a legacy of and a wealth of knowledge that can be dipped into and delved into for new insights 
for forever. And from the scientist's perspective, it it's going to make the, it easier for them to do their work. The principal investigators are going to have much better vis- visibility into the work that they're, the people in their lab are doing. They can be much more collaborative. They can be collaborative with people across the planet if they want to, with no limitations about, I can't take my lab notebook out of the lab type of stuff. Like All of that goes away. So that's how uh, decentralization in the sense of blockchain technology, the, what that brings to bear uh, is happening. So, yeah, and I think that absolutely. And I think a lot of what you talked about is that the way we do things now create just information silos. So even if you digitize it, you're still putting it into closed loop um, systems that only a group of people have access to, only a group of people can uh, um, know how to use it or even know the the, the company or the, the initiative, right? So it's, yeah. you're, you're digitizing it, but you're still keeping it private or with limited yeah. access. And so you're getting some of the benefits, but there's a lot that you're missing. And I yeah. get it, like the secrecy thing or the desire to protect your ideas. I mean, there's a real, there's a real, valid claim to make that if the if they can't protect their their ideas that there's going to be less incentive to even do the work um what what we believe is that blockchain technology allows for them to protect their ideas while also sharing them in a controlled way with the the greater public uh the blockchain ensures that there's no real question of attribution and we're creating an NFT called an IP NFT that will help us with that. At the same time, it will make it so that people can access that at a drastically reduced cost or maybe even no cost, depending on the situation, and come up with new important insights. There's this concept called, uh, what is it? Compute to data that was come, that was created by an organization called, why am I forgetting this all of a sudden, Um, Ocean Protocol. And uh, Ocean Protocol has this interesting way of helping people who have data sets promulgate that data out into the world in a way that preserves their control over the data and preserves um, the maybe the the intellectual property aspects of like not wanting to just give everything away for free or not wanting to allow non-attributed work to arise out of it mm-hmm. while at the same time making it available to others to query that data and come up with new insights um, with the advent of like bioinformatics which is essentially sort of data science and statistics for biological data um but handled primarily by computer software um like that would be a, 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 it's extremely important to be able to have access to vast quantities of normalized biological data in order to come up with new insights and normalizing that data which would have to be done in order to go on this this R&D platform which we're calling RNDNA um is One of the reasons why life sciences research is so hard to reproduce is because data is not normalized. And so 
by normalizing the data, putting it on the blockchain, making it so that collaboration is very is rewarded even. And we might we 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 hope to figure out token incentives where we reward the collaboration of between the scientists. Um, we think that all of those factors all put together combined with the other software applications that we're building in in this sort of system of start to finish life sciences research, we think that is what is going to accomplish our mission of of drastically reducing the time it takes for science to get done uh, and 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 yet doing it with greater speed and accuracy than ever before. It's very good. It's very good. And it's it's super interesting because since while we we discuss this and we navigate through the topics, we can easily identify a lot of agents that come up. So here we're talking about the scientists. We're talking about people who want to fund it. We're talking about scientists who are not the ones who are doing the research, but are the ones who are filtering. We also have, um, at the end of the day, uh, people who want to um, have financial benefit from it. So they're basically investors. And even farther from, from, from today, where you said you envision something like a social media, a social experience kind of kind of thing. And then you bring people who are scientists who are trying to network or companies who are trying to find people to hire or to invite to collaborate in their own research. So there are a lot of agents that come in and that start appearing. And we can we can go on for hours talking about incentives that can be created. And these incentives can be financial, they can be non-financial. And a lot of what you're talking about is non-financial, which is the 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 very beautiful part that I think of the side, which is we're trying to improve processes. And that's what the blockchain is. As you said, we don't even have to mention blockchain. If scientists are there and they see all of the research there, they see the tracking, they see how easy it is to get funding, to judge other people's work, to do peer review. You don't even need to mention NFT. You don't even need to mention blockchain. The solution talks for itself. So I think right. that... Um, it raises a lot of questions and I would love to bring you here again to okay. talk about these different agents and the different incentives that we can think of um, sure. and even dive a little bit more into like the technical aspects of what are you thinking for Cyanet. Um, But I would like to leave it a couple of minutes just for you to um, say your last words if you want to share a little bit of what are the next steps for Cyanet, how far this is from being even a reality um, or, or when the market can see this. So for Cynet, you know, it, it's interesting that you talk about like the financial versus non-financial incentives. We strongly believe that economic incentives run the world and that it's sort of a spinning of our wheels to try to convince the world to do things altruistically. Uh, people who are going to work altruistically are gonna, and people who don't have the tendency to are really only going to, if there is an incentive. And that's like the core concept of economic design, right? Is to generate token incentives or other kinds of incentives to get people to behave in the way that you want them to behave. Exactly. And we, what we want is for, for scientists to behave in a way that makes the science happen way faster. And uh, and for the sort of connecting systems that interact with the sciences to behave in a way that makes scientists science happen way faster. And so for us, it's all about figuring out how to pull different levers of incentives in order to 
maybe slightly paternalistically uh, guide how scientists science is done in a way that we think is going to be the best outcome for for the science. Um, not not like oh we want this science to be successful and this science to not be successful, but get the science done. How is it? What is going to lead to the scientific research actually getting done? And um, so. There are non-financial incentives for sure, but I think that those incentives eventually actually feed into the financial incentives. Um, And so I'll say that about that. Uh, Where we're at right now, we're about to launch the alpha version of our funding platform, which we call Sci-Fi for Science Finance. I expect it'll be done within the next 30-ish days. Um, People at that point will be able to create accounts on there and to start experimenting with submitting science app uh, uh, proposals for scientific research funding and creating accounts uh, to be backers of those research projects. Um, obviously, as an alpha release, there are certainly going to be uh, things that we're not seeing yet that are going to pop up that we're going to have to fix. But uh, we, we want to get it out there. We want people to start using it. And uh, that is what's on the horizon for us. If you are interested in that, I've got it pretty much all over my socials, a way to, to join a, a, like a wait list so that you can be notified of updates with us. The other thing that we really want to do is start raising um, money so that we can work on the next phase of our development, which is the digital research lab that we'll be building on the internet computer. Um, so. Uh, ideally we we think we want to raise a million dollars with a $5 million value cap, free money value cap. So that's, those are our two biggest focuses other than I am, people keep inviting me to podcasts. And so I, I continually get on those and I really enjoy it. Um, and I've started writing some long form content. So those are the other things that we're working on right now. That's amazing. And if you, if you want to share your socials for free and then people can reach out to you. Okay. Um, it's for, for Sinet, it's at, uh, Sinet underscore Inc. For me, it's at under Sinet underscore CEO. Um, mm-hmm. on there, you'll see like our link tree with publications that have mentioned us, our other socials, how to contact us and how to get, uh, involved in various ways, including on discord and on our wait list and things like that. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jordan, for your time. I think um, this is a topic that I really enjoy, especially we've seen this infrastructure trend on Web3 really coming in. And this is where we can really help, right? There's a lot of hype, a lot of uh, things that we listen to like NFTs, but they don't focus on the real solutions. So when we see things that tackle real problems um, is where we really see the potential. So thank you so much for coming in here and sharing with us. And we'd love to have you again um, to go in depth to the mechanisms and talk about each one of these agents. I think it would be very productive if we just um, uh, went into each one of them to see how yeah. um, our audience could benefit from it. Either maybe an investor, a scientist. Yeah, exactly. But okay. let's let's save that one for the next one. Thank you so All much. Right. And Thank I you. hope the audience enjoyed. Thank you for your time and for listening to our podcast. And we'll see you in the next one. Bye.